Kia ora everybody, my name is Erica and I am a Senior Comms Advisor here at the New Zealand Classification Office. And with me today is Caitlin on sound and film and also Dr. Kevin Veal, who is a researcher and lecturer in media studies from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Massey University. So we asked him to come in here and have a chat with us today to talk through his studies into hate speech and online harassment, because here at the Classification Office, Classifying social media content, whether that's videos, posts online, or imagery, is pretty common for us. And the kind of content that comes through our door tends to involve violence, sexual exploitation, hate speech, dangerous speech, or a combination of all of these elements. So, I'm going to kick us off with a question for you. Kevin, can you tell us how you got into this line of work? Sure, cure everybody. Um, it was mostly by accident or just as a side effect of growing up online in the 90s. Uh, in that some of my oldest friends are people I met while I was in high school arguing about video games and writing fanfic and all kinds of other great things. Harassment online has always been terrible. It's not a new thing. And, um, but it's never been evenly distributed. It particularly hits anyone identifiable as not a straight, white, cisgender, able-bodied white dude. Um, shocking. Nobody who's been paying attention. Um, so it's always really been part of the background radiation of life. But in the 20-teens, or whatever we're calling them, um, it got a lot more organized. Organized in terms of its structure, in terms of who it was targeting, it basically became planned. At the same time, it started attacking people I knew, and their family and friends, and um, the impact of it started ramping up as well. Normally my research is about storytelling in different new media forms, and one of the things that I looked at was um, alternate reality games. And at about this point, I noticed that basically this was working exactly like an alternate reality game if the goal was to destroy people's lives or drive them to suicide. So that was when I started digging. With this particular research, can you give us um, a basic definition of online hate speech or harassment? What does it look like? My understanding from the New Zealand Human Rights Commission is that hate speech is words or expression that encourages violence uh, and encourages others to hate or commit violence to somebody based on traits like gender or race or disability or sexuality or religion, things like that. And so we can see examples all over the place, pretty much the entire existence of Donald Trump. You've got J.K. Rowling um, endlessly insinuating that trans people are a danger to kids, which connects to people who used to say that gay people were a danger to kids, and just, just all of these kind of things of these people are a risk. And it encourages people to do something about this risk, which involves shutting people out or attacking them in all kinds of delightful ways. As far as I know, there's no difference between hate speech on and offline, or at least if there is, I don't think there should be, because there's no meaningful distinction. I don't think there ever really was. The difference between hate speech and free speech is that hate speech effectively makes it harder for other people to exercise their free speech by terrorizing them and threatening them um, with violence or attacking them directly. And this is why framing this kind of discussion as a debate is a really, really bad idea, because it means well, why should we expect already vulnerable people to have their fundamental humanity and dignity put up for neutral debate? And if you've got one person on one side saying, I think people like you deserve to be killed, and on the other side you've got somebody saying, I just want to be alive, there's not really a middle ground for that. Uh, it's not something that can be sensibly agreed to disagree over because one of them is a concrete threat to somebody's existence. Moana Jackson talks about this in the New Zealand context, although he was talking about universities specifically. He, he says that um, permissive Pākehā frameworks of freedom of speech privilege spite over respect, which I think is a nice phrase, and um, he says that people deserve to feel safe and free to participate in public discussions. 
Excellent. Thank you. That was brilliant. Can you talk to us? I know I've heard you speak before on how social media platforms profit from online harassment. Can you give us a basic understanding of this in a nutshell? Sure. Um, the way they profit from harassment can be very direct in horrifying ways. There was an event, for example, called The Fappening, delightfully, in 2014 on Reddit where a whole collection of private celebrity photos were leaked. The people on Reddit loved combing through this massive illegal breach of privacy that existed as kind of ongoing distributed harassment, uh, so much that they bought Reddit, enough Reddit currency in six days to run the whole site for a month. So that was people saying, this harassment is great, we want to see more of it. Ding, ding, ding. But it also ties into business models in more kind of fundamental ways, and like on Twitter, um, a impression is a tweet that generates replies from others online and it shows that the site is active, it, it, it's, it's framed positively. And that means that the people targeted by harassment have high levels of impressions as a direct result of the fact that people are terrorizing them. And so that means that they and the people harassing them are valuable to the network for as long as the harassment is sustained. And then Twitter goes to advertisers and says, look at our statistics for impressions, look how busy and active our users are, isn't that great, you want to advertise with us. And so it's, it's directly tied into the kind of the business model in that way. Um, basically the most toxic people have been described as the really valuable ones to the bottom line of sites like Twitter and Facebook. Additionally, they experiment on us, which is um, horrifyingly dystopian. Um, Facebook did a study a few years back that was hugely debated for whether the results should be published because it, we didn't want to encourage corporations to be just horrif horrifying. They studied to see if it was possible to take healthy people and make them depressed. They picked people at random. It worked. And then they went to advertisers and said, we can make people depressed on purpose. Imagine what we can do for your brand. Did they fix people afterwards? We don't know. Shrug. <laughs> and that's monstrous on many, many levels. That, that, that's like Nazi experimentation on people except psychologically. And that was why they did it. They did it to make money from this. So in, um, in your line of work, what does good look like for you in this space? Is there such a thing? Yes, uh, kind of. This small but positive. And one of the things I talk about in the book is kind of ways that we could design spaces by treating online harassment like alternate reality games. That gives us information about how we can kill alternate reality games and kind of minimize the impact of online harassment. And um, two of the least worst examples I can think of, um, there's one called pillowfort.social, which is in beta at the moment, and there's one called Ahua uh, for Arabic speaking countries. And Pillowfort is a social network platform that gives users a lot of control over who can see and engage with their content. Ahua, my understanding is that they take a different approach. It's a series of um, forums and online spaces for the rainbow community in Arabic speaking countries who obviously need lots of places to be safe and have actual state forces trying to find them. Can you talk me through also your ideas around community guidelines mm. and content moderation on platforms. Does any of it work? Yes, with some buts. I mean, platform community guidelines are really important because they're inward-facing communication and outward-facing communication at the same time. Is that it says, um, it removes confusion and ambiguity or room for people to pretend they didn't know. Like I've run into cases where somebody was spamming somebody else with really, really vile anti-abortion videos. 
And then they said, oh, I didn't know that was against the rules. And so the people in charge gave them the benefit of the doubt. And they started doing something else disgusting. So, oh, you didn't say that was against the And so if you just have these guidelines, it's basically don't be a dick. Um, but in more detail, obviously, that, that, that one doesn't work in itself. Um, there's less room for people to kind of hide. Um, but you constantly need to enforce them. You can't, you, it, it's like gardening. You can't just let things go. If you have an unmoderated environment, that is just, it's, it's a welcome mat for the Nazis and all kinds of horrible people. You, you need to work at it. I mean, an example was that um, a lot of the big social media companies, they've, they've got these policies that in theory say they're going to disallow all this stuff, but they ignore it uh, until advertiser pressure or something else comes in on them. Um, there's, there's some really quite horrifying examples of that where Facebook in 2011, they refused to take down uh, literal pro-rape pages that were on their network uh, on the grounds that they could be understood potentially as jokes. And, um, and that was in 2011 and people organized against it and it took years, but in 2013, um, 50 advertisers threatened to pull their advertising from Facebook because of this and so then they got taken down. But all the time in the community guidelines, this would have been against the hate speech things. So it's a mess. In terms of advertisers removing revenue, what mm. are your thoughts around the current Stop Profit for Hate campaign? I think it's a great start. Um, it's, it's community organizing, it's um, collective action, which I'm always in favor of, um, and it's anything that we can do to kind of threaten the finances of the, these global giants that have near monopolies over things. Like uh, if, if people threaten to take their advertising away from Facebook and Google, that's good. I mean, one of the things that makes people reluctant to do it is that they can say, well, where do we go instead? Where else is there? Google is the advertising infrastructure of the internet. But it's still something that we have to try. I mean, it is a collective approach that we've seen work before. Like I mentioned, the whole case of people organizing over many years to get Facebook to take down its pro-rate pages, which seems like really low-hanging fruit, but there we go. Um, but that did actually work. It's just, it's an example where this isn't new, but it needs to be sustained. We, we need to keep the pressure up. Talk to me about the sorts of things we can do to engage with social media in a more positive way for our own mental health. How do we take care of ourselves online? Sure. I think the first step is just find spaces you enjoy. They're out there. Uh, this can be finding a whole different platform. Or it can be about curating who you share a space with. But just, I think we need to be more willing to say, I'm getting off Facebook because it makes me miserable. And if people who you can only contact through Facebook don't offer you alternative contacts, then bye. It's not worth it. We need to, to look at our own quality of life. And this stuff has significant consequences for people's well-being, their health, in, in, and not, not just mental health, but physical health. And mental health is important enough on its own, but you, you look at everything together and it's very, very important. Are we getting something out of it? Is it useful for us? At the very least, take breaks. This is exhausting. It's a kind of work. It's a social work. And we need to use those things, those breaks to drink water, look out a window, move around. Um, it, it, it's designed to capture our attention and keep us as much as possible. So we need to kind of work against that. Um, and I do have just a couple more um, quick mm -hmm. questions for you. Um, have you seen any positive changes or forward movement within the social media space since you started researching this? Yes and no. Um, I think the amount of organization and levels of harassment and severity of harassment just keeps escalating over the time I've been looking at it. Um, and the amount, the, the ways that social media companies are figuring out how to make money from it is becoming um, more obvious 
and uh, more effective, so they're more motivated to keep doing it. And also the fact that people have been doing this for so long is emboldening them because they know nobody's stopping them. But we're also having these conversations in a way that we weren't having five years ago. So, uh, or even two years ago, or one year ago, or six months ago. Maybe six, six months ago, but yeah. Um, so the conversations are happening. The Christchurch Call to Action Summit, I think, is a really good start. Uh, it, it went a lot further into more specific detail than I was expecting it to, but it also has a whole host of, of issues and actually introduces new problems that weren't there to start with, which is great. But... Um, the pressure is starting to come on, which is great. And I think that is a, that at least is a positive trend. Thank you. And what are your thoughts around um, any sort of regulation of social media companies, whether that's through legislation or? <laughs> yes, sorry, for the people at home, I, I was nodding a lot. Um, <laughs> we've, we've basically run an experiment on what deregulated social media environments are like for the last 10 to 15 years, and they're a shit show. So we need, you know, this, if the status quo is terrible, we need to change something. And the companies are very, very invested in saying that the status quo is inevitable, it's impossible to do anything about online harassment, oh well, we just deal with it. No, there, there's more that can be done. There's all kinds of tools that could be applied and have been applied to preserve kind of business partnerships, but that aren't applied to looking after people. And we can ask questions about why. I mean, for example, Twitter is capable of pulling down videos of the uh, GIFs of the Olympics in minutes because they, they weren't the ones with the broadcast rights and they were going to get sued. But if somebody is spamming a journalist they don't like with um, GIFs designed to trigger epilepsy because they know that they're an epileptic, Twitter says, oh, there's nothing we can do. Can you give me your thoughts too on how deplatforming works for people who are notorious harassers online? Deplatforming is vital. It, uh, it has a significant impact. If we listen to um, serious uh, online harassers and organizers of this, they always say deplatforming never works and try to discourage people from doing it. And why do we want to listen to these assholes? They, they, it's like, you know, oh, don't throw me in the briar patch. Regulation doesn't work. But it does. It has a substantial impact on people. There's all kinds of examples of this where you never get rid of things entirely, but when sites like Stormfront, which was a neo-Nazi organizing site, got, got taken off advertising and taken off Google, that had a big impact on their ability to exist. Anytime somebody says, I'm me and I'm comfortable making the statement that I think a whole bunch of people should die, that's not neutral. So limiting their ability to say that, limiting their ability to connect with others is really important. And it's particularly because these people make money from this. It's one of the things that um, is, is quite appalling about this is that um, it's not just the social media companies profiting from, from online harassment, it's the people doing it. It, it is possible to become what Whitney Phillips calls a, a chaos entrepreneur where you compete with other people making money by being the bigger monster so that this community of other monsters will fund you to be more monstrous to people. And all the time, YouTube takes a cut and Patreon takes a cut. Um, so deplatforming people is really important. Um, and you've mentioned a couple of times your book. Would you mm. be able to give us a bit more information about that? When is it coming out? Uh, I'm not 100% sure. I think it'll be by the end of this year or early in next year. It's called Gaming the Dynamics of Online Harassment, and it's, it's about this. It's about what happens if we treat online harassment as an alternate reality game, what we can learn from that, 
um, tools that we could use in theory to, to help minimize online harassment, but that the in theory part comes from the fact that the social media platforms probably know more about it than I do, and they haven't done any of this stuff. So then it gets into a little bit about what we can do about that. Cool, thank you. And just the one last thing, um, are you able to run us through um, any places that people can go for help if they have been a victim of online harassment? Yeah, the the first one I think is that in the New Zealand context at least you can call 1737 or text it at any time for any reason to talk to a counsellor and uh, I think surviving online harassment or experiencing hate speech is definitely on that list but people minimise it. They think it's not that bad, they think it's just opinions but it harms people. So treating it like that I think is a very good start. People who get online harassment develop PTSD. It's, um, it has massive impacts on people's lives. Um, in addition, there's other resources that I can share and we can possibly put links up. There, there's NetSafe, um, there's the Crash Override Network's Anti-Harassment Resource Center, there's um, a bunch of other things. And I think there's also stuff that people can do that isn't just about the people who are affected by online harassment. It's what happens when we see it. None of this stuff doesn't just spring fully formed from people's foreheads. They test the waters. And so we need to be, you know, the white cisgender, able-bodied, largely white dudes in particular need to be a lot more willing to be uncomfortable and, and deal with this stuff. If, if somebody is being a racist or a transphobe or a homophobe, we need, to, we need to engage with it early as kind of part of this gardening. It's not just passing the buck. I, I don't think we can wait for somebody to cross a line and say, oh, that's hate speech all of a sudden. Now we should get involved. Um, Sazia Bashir um, from Radio New Zealand wrote a thing after the Christchurch terrorist attacks where she wrote about four things people can do, and I think that that's a good basis to work from. Um, because it shouldn't just be the people who are affected who have to kind of deal with it. We need to look after them first, if we can. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today. No worries. Thank you. And good luck with the rest of the book. Thank you. <laughs>